Welcome to another episode of Where You Are. My guest today is Natalia Winters, a colleague of mine who not only excels as a mentor and leader in education, but also shines brightly in her everyday life by intentionally creating safe spaces around her for meaningful conversation and encouragement. You can find her at her Instagram handle at Healing is the Goal, where she hosts a weekly live Instagram called Cue the Confetti, Safe Space Conversations. In these live videos, Natalia shares her platform with others in order to explore the world through the experiences of those who have inspired her. But in this episode of Where You Are, we turn the tables on Natalia as we explore her world. Natalia reminds us of the power of vulnerability, transparency, and intentionality as she discusses surviving domestic violence, working as an advocate and mentor, living in America in the 21st century, exploring her own inner world, and being a mother. Every time I talk to Natalia, I come away with a feeling of connectedness and warmth, and I always learn something that I feel makes me a better person. I know that you will have that same experience, so please enjoy this interview with Natalia Winters, and go check her out on Instagram at Healing is the Goal. You won't regret it. And now, for the interview. I'm here with Natalia Winters, who is one of my favorite people in the world. She's a colleague of mine. There are so many things that I could talk to you about, but I want to just jump in first and start talking about social media, the space that you've created on social media, because I've had these conversations before on the podcast. Fox and I have actually talked about social media a lot. I really admire the, your presence. You have on Instagram, it's called Healing is the Goal, right? That's correct. And every Saturday, I think you have a live show called Cue the Confetti, which is a safe space for conversations. Like last, a couple of weeks ago, you had your friend Tina on talking about Asian Americans and, and Black people and the intersections there. This past Saturday, I think was, you know, you were talking about the shared humanity and the intersections of humanity. So I just wanted to ask you, how did you get started with that on social, on, on Instagram or anywhere? And what is your sort of motivation to do that? Well, first, thank you so much for inviting me. I considered it an honor when you when you asked me, really. And so, so thank you. But, yeah, I'm so glad to have you. Yeah. Here. At Healing is the Goal is my handle on Instagram. And the reason behind Cue the Confetti really birthed out of a space around trying to control narratives that society tries to pin on you. The reason I chose Cue the Confetti as the title is because when I think of confetti, I think of brightness, I think of celebratory things, and why can't we celebrate our lived experiences, even if they don't necessarily align with what society says they should be? Two things really motivate me. I saw a quote one time that said, when, when you have a child, two people are born. And so Gray has been my motivation. She's my five-year-old ebullient little girl and ebullient personality. And she was diagnosed with a rare disorder at birth. And 
in those moments where I really needed a space to connect, I did not have that as a mom, as a young mother. I mean, although I was over 30, you still feel young in that space and also not having an inclusive type of resource available to me. And so she is my everyday motivation, but also I am a domestic violence survivor. And what I discovered is that the experience of domestic violence was not as tough as the healing from domestic violence. Mm -hmm. And that is what motivates me every single day that in those moments, I needed a space that was safe for me to share my experience and not feel judged and not feel shamed or or victimized. That's what I wanted to create. And it just literally came to me one day. I've always kind of been the person that that marches to the beat of my own drum. I I didn't really seek permission. I think sometimes in our lives, we want to ask people we love, what do you think about this idea? I'm doing this. But for me, I really try to do things very organically. And if I feel settled in it, my energy, I just go ahead and do it. And that's what I did. I can attest to that, just knowing you from from work. How long ago did you start Cue the Confetti? I started it during the pandemic, Mm -hmm. right? So it had always been something kind of in me, but I never really felt like the time was right. I'm I'm really focused on energy. If my energy is off a little bit, I just don't do it. And so one day I I joined a friend of mine, his live, and we were talking about certain things. People started saying things that really made more of a confirmation for me. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. Just do it, Natalia. You are a natural. I remember when we did that, we did a thing at school where, what was it called? It was like a, it was a discussion forum and you were the host basically. Mm-hmm. And I remember listening to you thinking this woman is like a talk show host. She should have her own show. She's amazing. Do you get nervous doing it live? Yes. Every time, <laughs> every time. But I really revel in the, in the nervousness because I feel like as long as I'm nervous, I have not reached perfection and I don't want to reach perfection. Right. I want to always feel my feelings going in because it's important to me. And so because it's important to me, I don't ever want to get settled in, I think I got this in the bag, right? I want to always feel a little nervous going in to ensure that I'm I'm speaking clearly, that I'm making my thoughts very clear, and that I'm not saying something that might be offensive, that I'm really intentionally, methodically thinking about everything that I'm saying. Yeah, your intentionality is a huge aspect of your personality. That's an inspiring thing that I take away from any conversation with you. You're very intentional. I am. When you choose who you're going to have on, what inspires that? Like, I I know you had Tina on to talk about Asian American issues and intersections with with Black people's issues, but but how do you make other choices? So Tina was also someone I wanted to bring on because of the Asian hate crimes that are happening. The rallying behind anti-Blackness that came out of that, that was very important to me. But also, again, I'm really connected to my energy. It sounds really weird for people, especially for me growing up in the South in a really deeply religious family, to not necessarily associate everything I'm doing with God so much in in a formal sense, but God in a sense of spirit, right? In energy that 
sometimes things just drop in my spirit and people drop in my spirit. And my grandmother, she lived to be a few months shy of 94, I'm sorry, 95. And she died three years ago. She would always say to me, if you feel it, it is for a reason. And so I always held on to that. So if I feel something, I really try to to hone in on that. And I want to grab it and I want to figure out what, why is this dropped on my spirit? What is it about this that I feel connected to? And it's very important to me. Do you think that you were born with or have developed some sort of stronger connection to energy than most people? Absolutely. How does that happen? When Gray was born, I would spend the night in her room. She spent about a week and a a couple days in the NICU. So I missed a lot of vital time with her. So when she came home, I literally would sleep in the bed that was in the room with her. I just wanted to be close to her. And one night I felt spirit is what people who believe in the medium says. I wasn't really sure what I was experiencing. It felt like a dream, but I wasn't sure. I felt the presence of someone in the room and it startled me out of my sleep. And I ran to the light and turned the light on thinking someone was going to be standing there. I actually thought it was maybe my husband standing in the doorway and no one was there. And I checked and he was asleep. And I wasn't really sure because that was the strongest energy I had ever felt. And I remember calling my mom and I told her about it because she would tell me about a family member who would experience these things when they were growing up. And I shared with her and she made me feel normal right? She, she did not question what I was experiencing. She just said, if it happens again, try your best to be calm and see if you can communicate. And I thought, okay, this is weird, but okay. And it (laughs) happened again. And when it happened again, I was able to really rest my mind. And when I connected with what I felt was the energy, it felt like a father energy. And I could smell smoke. I could smell like uh, cigars, things like that. And I don't personally know anyone who smokes cigars. My father didn't. And my father is alive and my paternal grandparents are alive. So I really wasn't sure what this father figure was. It just made me feel like it was my dad, but it wasn't my dad. And later I, I decided to share it with my husband. And based on the things that I described to him, the feelings that I had, he said that had to be my grandfather. Oh, and wow. He was the closest to my husband. He died when he was a teenager. But the, the office that's adjacent to my daughter's room, there are only three pictures in the room. My husband and I, he and my daughter, Gray, and his grandfather, he and his grandfather. And it was when he started to describe him and he said, well, you know, he, he smoked a pipe. And I was like, this is crazy. But I could literally sense him. I could feel him. So I think it's always there. But I've never really tried to connect with it in a way where I would expose myself to that deep criticism in a deeply religious family. Yeah, I really don't really talk about it much. I, I have shared that story with, with people, close people that, that know me. But those who know, know I'm really, really, really serious about my energy If anything feels off, I don't do it. I just don't. I don't know. Maybe I was born that way. I think it's very akin to intuition, though, probably a lot stronger than intuition. And I think intuition 
and energy are both very, very important. There, I've gone through periods in my life where I feel more tapped in and then I get more cerebral and in my head and anxious sometimes. And that gets in the way. Yeah. Not getting in your head is really important when you're trying to connect with your energy, because I personally don't feel like they can co- coexist, that you have to really let things be organic. For example, I, I went skydiving for my birthday. I saw that you did that. And I was like, what? But let me tell you, when I had originally scheduled to go, that morning I woke up, I did not feel it. I told my husband, my energy is off. I'm not going. And he was like, what we planned? And I was like, I I understand, but I feel weird. And so because I feel weird, I can't go. And then I waited and just decided to go when I felt it. It was really strange. (laughs) How did that feel when you did it? It made me feel, I would say anxious. It gave me a feeling of just kind of anxious, uncertainty. I didn't like have death thoughts or anything like that, but it made me feel just unsure. And I'm yeah. because I'm always intentionally centering myself because I felt a little off, I, I couldn't. So when you jumped out of the plane, how did you feel? Listen, people don't believe me, but I had zero fear. From the time I showed up, went through the video, they let you know there is a possibility that you could be injured or or die doing this particular (laughs) event. But I never felt one ounce of fear. It was the, I mean, the strangest thing I've ever experienced, even to the point when we walked to the edge of the plane, I felt nothing as it relates to fear, right? I was, I was oddly calm. It was strange. It was strange. I would not have figured you to be the type to go jump out of a plane, Natalia. Listen, I'm an adrenaline. I really am. (laughs) I really am. Except roller coasters. I don't do roller coasters, but I do like adrenaline things like zip lining and things like that. I love that. So do you, let me ask you this. Do you think that for people who find themselves sort of situated in fear, because that's, you know, a lot of people do have a lot of fear in their life. I have fear in my life, you know? I think, I guess we all do, but some people sit in it more than others. Yeah. You think doing something like that can release you from other fears or are they just separate? I, oh, that's a tough question. I would say, I think that comes actually when you're a lot more fearless. I don't think they, personally, I don't think they exist together. Fearlessness has to have a space in order to do something like that personally. And if, if you've watched many of my Cue the Confettis, I've talked about on the other side of fear is everything you want, right? Is the life you want, is whatever it is, you have to be real, willing to take a risk. And I'm always willing to take a risk. I'm going to always bet on myself, always. Even if I fail, I'll build, i fail, I'll build again, I'll fail again, and that's okay. But I will always keep building, always. Well, you said earlier something that stuck with me and I wanted to bring it back up. You said something about how healing was difficult. After the abuse. After the abuse. What do you think? I know you're creating spaces for healing and for shared stories. Do you think that it's essential for people to have those spaces to discuss things as part of their healing? Absolutely. Absolutely. When I went through domestic violence, I I had to move. I had to move out of the state, literally, to save my life. And I did not share my story publicly until 2018. 
Now, I went through the, through the abuse in 2005, 2006 uh, consecutively. And I moved to Arkansas, okay? A little town called Conway, Arkansas, right outside of Little Rock. When I was there, I was there with a family member and she created a safe space for me that no one in my family had ever done. I shared stories with her that I had not shared with anyone else at the time. Real grungy, dirty, like you can't believe you would experience something like that. I shared these things with her because in those moments of vulnerability, I felt safe, right? And I didn't know at the time that that would give birth to something like this, but it did. And I remember when I got married and I thanked her at my wedding, I told her that her love saved me. And because her love saved me, it gave me a chance to love in a, in a deeper way and connect in a deeper way. And because she saved my life, she saved Keenan's life. And because she saved our lives together, we had the possibility of, of bringing forth children, which yeah. I really didn't know if I wanted at the time, but I felt such a deep connection to the ability to love someone so much that you would give them the space they need to really, really go towards their healing. And she yeah. did that for me singularly by herself. And yeah. so she really did kind of birth this idea of the importance of healing yourself after anything traumatic, big or small. Love is very, very powerful. Absolutely. I think sometimes that can be a cliche when you talk about love, but it is really, really powerful. It really is. And there just isn't enough of it. It's more than we think. There are pockets of it, right? But that's why when I talked on the last cue, the confetti, when I talk about algorithms, right? We can turn our algorithms off on our social media, but you can't turn your algorithms off in your life. So it's important that you structure them in a way. So I don't necessarily try to involve myself solely in things that don't speak to the things that I want to, that I want to speak to or speak for. So I disconnect completely from those things. So now my algorithms are set up where I'm seeing a lot of love. I got a lot of resistance from the anti-Asian hate and the Black culture. I, I did get some people who were like Black people and Asians. There's just too much history there. It's never going to change. But because my algorithms have shifted, I see a lot of solidarity. And I would urge them, reconfigure your, your Instagram so that you're connecting with the people who are doing the work, who are centering their thoughts around disowning anti-Blackness and disowning white supremacy and all of these things that do affect us as a collective. And I think that's important. I was watching earlier today, just because I do this randomly, I, I love James Baldwin. And I know you had like a little thing about James Baldwin recently. And I was watching an interview he did with, was it Dick Cavett? And he's talking about race in America. And this was in, must have been in the late seventies. And I thought, has anything changed? You know, he says, James Baldwin said in that interview that America was never a democracy. He had some, you know, pretty powerful indictments of us as a country. Where do you think we are now as a country? Have we changed at all? So, have I know we I just threw a lot at you. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's funny because I've actually been thinking about this as I, as I really focus a lot of my attention on healing. And I think when I talk about saturating myself in Blackness, but also making space for other ethnicities, including yes. white people as well. Like it's not just about 
people of color and marginalized communities. It's about understanding it collectively. And when I think of America, I think of America as an abused child. So America escaped tyranny from England, right? And fought for its independence. And because America never healed from their abuse, they have then just abused everyone else along the way. And that's how I see America. So as I am learning more about who I am as a person, what my ancestors endured, I also make sure I read things like 1776, right? I want to understand what the framework and the, the mindset is of people as it relates to our, our founding fathers. But I also read other books about other ethnicities as well. I can't just solely be situated on Blackness if I want to see a world that's better for my daughter, right? And not just my daughter, but for all children. And it seems like fairy tales and rainbows, right? But I know that my parents hoped for a better future. And they would say that they're better, that we have a better situation than them, right? My dad grew up in the Jim Crow South. He went to an all-Black high school. When they integrated, they threw all of their things into the into the trash, like into the city dump. He mm. lost everything, yearbooks, his records, instruments. Every piece of history that that school had acquired over the years was thrown away. And it was supported not just through the community, but through police as well, who escorted these people to the dump to ensure that no one tried to take these things. Mm. So as, I, as I'm learning that, it's okay for me to almost grieve in that way, but also want to simultaneously understand the mindset, right? And so I just think America is a is an abused child who has never healed. And because you don't heal, what you tend to do when you're broken is break other people because we continue to make decisions from a traumatic space. And and quite frankly, I I just think we have a lot of work to do. The Declaration of Independence talks about it, right? That if the government starts to go against what this Declaration of Independence says, that the people are to overthrow that government because the government speaks for the people. And if the government stops speaking for the people, there is a problem. But we don't see that today. The government is almost a separate entity and the citizens are left out on their own unless you're the few elite who make it to Congress. But these people are making decisions for people in a situation that they've never experienced. Yeah. And you will leave office a millionaire while people are starving. I also want to just say this, when we're talking about America, until we're honest about the disparities between ethnic groups, we're never going to get anywhere. When when people of color and marginalized people receive social benefits, it's socialism. But we know that people who returned from World War II, for example, received benefits from the federal government to start their lives. But that right. was not considered socialism. But it depends on who's receiving it determines what it is. And we have to be real about that. And until we're, we stop lying to ourselves as a country... We're going to be here. Do you have hope that that lying to ourselves is going to stop anytime soon? Well, I believe I do have hope that it'll happen in pockets around us, which will give me hope to keep going. 
But collectively as a country, I'm not so hopeful. I don't have a lot of hope, mainly because of what's happened in the last four years. Not that that should have been a surprise or anything, and not that everything was always there under the surface anyway. Right. But especially now that people feel so emboldened and stuck in their ways and... Yeah. You know, we see, we say when we stop lying to ourselves, I really think it's it's mainly white people that need to stop lying to themselves. And that's what scares me <laughs> as a white person. <laughs> Again, with cue the confetti, right? It says control the narrative. The narrative has always been that for someone to gain, you have to lose. Right. I'm not sure what it is in the psyche that does not allow that type of thinking that equality and equity is for everyone. And it doesn't mean that you're gonna get a smaller piece of the pie. It doesn't mean that. And I'm not sure what this, well, when you say that, it makes me think about, again, going back to our independence, that America fought so hard to be separate, right? That they are holding on to that for dear life and they've not unclenched their fists. And so even though the country has evolved beyond that, their fists are clenched and they just won't release it. No one's asking, I hear this a lot on social media, as a black person, I'm not asking white people to own everything that has happened. I'm asking for tolerance, for understanding, for compassion, for sensitivity. Those simple things that when I'm having a conversation, you're not automatically thinking I am attacking you because my experience includes you in a negative way, but that you understand and make space for my lived experience and learn from it in the same way that I can learn from yours. Learning is is so important. I mean, love and energy and all those things are important. Our educational system, though, has really... I think, stymied our growth. Oh, absolutely. Because think of all the things that we never learned about, you know, what we would call black history, which is really American history. If you're talking, you know, if you're talking about black Americans, you're talking about American history. And if you're talking about Native Americans, you're talking about American history. We're just taught so many half truths and complete lies and cover ups that by the time most of us are adults, that's just what we believe this pretty little picture this pretty little picture. How do you approach education with your young daughter? Yeah, we, Gray is really smart. I wish I could say it was just her father and I, but she really is a gifted kid. So we have talked to her very early about who she is and what, as a people, we are about. And even this past uh, Friday, we took her to the Civil Rights Museum. It was funny, we were talking about it the other night, and she said, you know, Mommy, Rosa Parks is in the museum at the Civil Rights Museum and she's sitting on the bus. I said, yes. And she said, but it says that she's sitting in a white section. But the truth is she was sitting in the black section, but someone wanted that seat and she she did not get up, which is the truth. The story is written like she was she just sat in the wrong section. But the truth is she sat in the right section but they wanted that seat, right? And so my five-year-old is very cognizant. And she kept saying throughout the museum, this is about understanding that we have rights too, as people, as black and brown people. And I said, absolutely. So it's important that I teach her very early on what it means to be accepting of people, to understand who you are, so that you're not having to apologize to people about who you are. 
but also that you are making space to accept other people's experiences, right? Not once did she say anything hateful about what was happening on the white American side. Mm -hmm. She really just saw the compassion. It was very, it was a very, I mean, I would say an awakening experience to see her so compassionate, like not focusing on the negative, but just this is good because I can vote when I turn 18. Like she understands that. And I, I think that's important. You know, I grew up with a mother who was, I would say we're very similar. She always taught me about Black culture. So even in my textbooks growing up in rural Alabama, I mean, we, we, you hear about the Atlantic slave trade, a little bit of civil rights, the same civil, right, civil rights icons that you still hear about today. But she introduced me to so much more, the Negro National Baseball League, things like that. I had Black art on my walls growing up. It wasn't expensive art, but it was Black people, which I think is important when you're trying to identify yourself in the world, that even though in the school systems, I had no identity other than being an enslaved person in my home, my mom reminded me that I was so much more than that. Right. That's important. As you work with older students in your job, do you ever find yourself coming up against or in situations where you need to clarify things about history or have you ever had problematic situations with students around social issues, not just race, but anything? And how do you deal with that with students? So, yeah. So I've had someone ask, why do we talk about slaves every Black History Month when when there were white slaves? (laughs) And so I explained to her that they were indentured servants. What they would do was come to America on someone else's dime and pay their debt over a course of a few years. And once they had paid the debt, they were then free to be citizens, rights and privileges, even though they were not technically Americans, white, right? And the difference in the enslaved person who never received freedom were treated with brutal conditions, no matter though though the narrative will say, well, some people enjoyed it. Well, no, they were denied the right to read or to write or to really exist as a human being. So there are really stark differences. So uh, I shared that with her. She didn't really like it. And that's okay. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with you not liking it, but I I delivered it in a way that I felt was as compassionate as I could be, but honest. And I also shared with her that it was important for her to be responsible enough to read for herself and not try to defend because this is not about you against me, but understanding our cultures, even though they're so starkly different. And then I've had uh, students who refused to vote They felt like voting had no space in their life, that it wasn't going to change anything. I've had many conversations, especially with Black students, around this idea and even colorism in the Black community. I've had conversations with students who kind of jokingly talked about colorism and even body shaming and things like that, that I would have very candid conversations with them about what their behavior was displaying how they can affect someone's life by doing that and really hoping that they are open enough to receive what I'm saying and try to do small things to change your thinking that it's not your parents' fault that you didn't know some of these things, right? Because we all are just doing the very best we can. But at some point you are now responsible 
for the way in which you operate in the world and the way in which you engage with people. I want to ask you some not so heavy questions. Sure. So when you're not shining your light bright to save the world, what do you like to do like for fun besides jump out of planes? Besides jump out of planes, really anything with gray is fun. So we do a lot of play, dress up, little girly things. I know people don't think reading is fun, but I have a lot of like non-political readings that I do that I, I like reading so much because it really takes you to new spaces and new worlds. And if the author, I mean, when you find an author that is really great at bringing you into a story and you like see yourself in that story, it's amazing. So I do like doing a lot of leisure reading when I have time mm-hmm. and um, really just always finding time to just do little things for me that may seem inconsequential to other people, like flowers. I always have flowers by my bedside, always. It is something that brings me light. I don't know what it is. Real flowers. Real flowers. Real flowers. And my (laughs) husband will sometimes buy them and other times I buy them. And I'm also obsessed with nail polish. So again, I don't really spend a lot of time in nail salons. It's just not my thing, but I will, I will buy polish and I will sit here and I will spend an hour manicuring my hands and, or my feet. And to me, that's good times. I'm decompressing. I'm recentering myself, even though I'm not intentionally trying to do it. It just happens. And my husband, that's my time. Great does as well. She, she knows that's mommy's time. So can you think of a book that you really love that you would recommend one of your leisure readings? Ooh, this book called Rabbit. It is by an author named, let me make sure her name is correct, <laughs> uh, Patricia Williams. She's a okay. comedian, but she wrote this fantastic book called Rabbit. It is hilarious. Okay. But well, I will really read that. Good. It's really good, but it's, it's hard for you to, to laugh in a book. But she does it. This is a great book. Great leisure book, Rabbit. I'm putting that on my list. I've been reading like crazy since the pandemic, more than I did before. Yeah. Finishing books, which used to be unusual for me. (laughs) Do you meditate? Absolutely. I don't do it in the traditional way, I think. It's the same way I feel about praying. I think people have an idea about what it's supposed to look like. And if you can achieve that, replicate that, then you're doing it wrong. So I do a lot of my best thinking comes in the shower. I sometimes have to set my phone and set it for a recorder because I'll just start talking. And if I don't record it, I can't, I can't regurgitate it later. I consider that a lot of my meditating and on my drive in the mornings, a lot of times I drive with no music, um, no talking on the phone. People know don't call me in the mornings on my drive. I need to make sure my mind is clear. And so I spend that time just, you know, reorganizing my thoughts. If there's something I need to clear up or clear with someone, I'm thinking about how I want to intentionally engage with them. So I spend a lot of time in my car and in my shower, really meditating and praying, honestly. Those are excellent times to do that. I think that some people do that without, they don't realize that's what they're doing. You know, people say, oh, I had an idea in the shower. Well, remember that and like use that time. Right. I don't always have time to sit on a yoga mat, right? I don't have the discipline to do that. Right, right. That too. When, when I was younger, I was really into Shirley MacLaine. 
Mm-hmm. And I read all of her books and I was meditating. I would go out into the field behind my house and <laughs> there was this sunken end spot and there was a huge stump in the middle of that sunken end spot. And I would sit on that. And so I, my eyes would be level with the horizon oh. and I would meditate. And as I was meditating, my body would move around in a circle. That was me. I would, I was into chakras and everything. And now I guess I'm not as in touch with all of that as I used to be. Yeah. I'm going to ask you something serious again. Because it really has been on my heart for, I think, several years now. It seems that so much of people's identity comes from, as Americans, comes from being American. And and I'm not even asking you, I'm not asking this as a Black woman. I'm not asking this as a white person. I just, conceptually, I cannot identify anymore as my country. I, I just, do you identify as an American uh, I think I do, as default, identify as American, right? It is the kind of thing that follows your ethnicity, right? And I feel like there are times when not associating yourself with it creates such tension around you that you rather not have to fight off the zombies. That's how I feel. <laughs> they are attacking me and it's just... Just pump your brakes for a minute and listen, but you can't because your mind is so absorbed with this idea of patriotism and what that looks like that you can't see anyone else's experience. And so quietly, I question myself as an American all the time. I wonder if there will ever come a time where I feel unapologetically American, where I feel completely involved as an American. I don't know that that time will come in my lifetime, honestly. So I do struggle with the identity of that. Um, I don't necessarily struggle with my ethnic identity. Mm -hmm. I do struggle with that because I just don't see myself a lot in America and what it means to be American, right? Just things that people do and the way certain people think. I don't think that way. Even when it comes to Christianity, I saw Bernice King post on on Instagram that the American flag is not the flag of the kingdom of God. And I think that we have done that, right? That if you are not this type of Christian, then, then you're wrong, right? And that she said, you know, that religion, God is global, right? It is not just this isolated group because I identify with that. And I think there are a small percentage of people who do. I really feel alien. I tell my husband all the time, I just don't always know if I feel like I belong here. And just as a person, not even a black woman, just as a person, I just, I don't know that I belong here. I don't know where I belong though. I don't know that. I mean, I know that there are pockets of belonging. Like I know I belong. Of course. In certain pockets. But when I think of the larger like country and what that means, I probably think more along the lines of something that I know scares the heck out of people. But I think more globally, you said something about global. I know globalization is a scary concept, but it does seem to me that at some point we're all on this planet together. I know there are always people going to be warring and hating and all that, but we can do better. We can identify I don't know. I haven't thought it all out. And I know that it sounds controversial to even say I don't feel like an American. It's not that I'm anti my country. 
right. necessarily. But I just think we have lied about who we are for so long that I don't know that, I don't know who we are. No, but it goes back to my idea about America being so broken. Yeah, and we are broken. Mm-hmm. When I was watching that interview with James Baldwin again this afternoon, I thought he said to Dick Cavett, he said, you know, you take for granted that we want, meaning Black people want your institutions, we want your praise, we want your acceptance. But he said, your institutions have not been good to us. Maybe we don't want American democracy. And I find that hits my spirit in a certain way, because I just think as revolutionary as America beginning was, why can't we do something else revolutionary and start, and you know what I mean? Like yeah. start building towards something else that's revolutionary, that's more inclusive and more, I don't know, oh. equitable. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. And it goes back again. I, I, I guess I feel like I have to keep saying is like, until we heal that space, until we're honest on, on cue, the confetti, I talk about this idea around healing. It's a three part. Um, I call it authentic emotional exchange. And you can't really have honest, authentic exchanges with people until you are vulnerable, transparent, right? You have to be vulnerable first, willing to be exposed, show who you are, say I made a mistake, I didn't get it right. Then you're transparent, right? You're clear on who you are, what you need to fix, what you need to work on. And and really with your vulnerability, you began to see what you need to fix instead of trying to fix everyone else. And America's always trying to fix everyone else and not dealing with America's stuff. And that's how you get to authenticity. That's how you get to realness. Instead of going to these other countries and trying to make them democracies, when we don't even allow people in our own country to vote without suppression, we need to stop and be honest about ourselves. And that goes collectively as a country, but people individually as well yeah. it's okay to be vulnerable but you ca- you can't really get your healing until you're willing to be vulnerable vulnerability i have found is so important so important and, and i appreciate your vulnerability and coming you know people who do things publicly and talk about their beliefs and share things that is a very vulnerable position to be in vulnerability transparency authenticity authenticity i love that So I think we can probably end on that note, Natalia. I really appreciate you doing this. Is there anything you wanted to say in closing? Yeah, I wanted, I know we talked about advice on on this brightening corner. And I was thinking about, I've been thinking about that since we, we spoke via email. And the advice I want to give people is the advice I take for myself every day. And I think it is helpful and it is what you give to the world will make space for you and you will receive it when it's time. So if you give love and acceptance and tolerance and forgiveness and inclusion and understanding when you need that in your life, there it will be there for you. And no matter what people are saying, they're gonna always be naysayers around these ideas and that's okay. If you're authentic about your approach, it'll only be in the few, right? And you don't have to focus on those people or be distracted by those things, people, or events. So I think the best advice I can give to people is what you want is what you give out. I love that. And I, and I, I that's what you do. 
I know you're sick of me saying it, but mm-hmm. I really am so grateful for your presence on this planet. I mean that. Well, I mean, I connect with kindred spirits. I don't, when I started really doing this type of work years ago, that was one of my intentions that if that person cannot be in a space of opening and accepting, don't let them attach to me. And what I do in my mentorship is the same thing. I have tons of students who I still communicate with, but there are tons more that I met that never latched on. They were not in a space. And so I look at you in the same way. You're someone who is open to the ideas and the the lived experiences of other people. You're, You're dealing with your own things, but also making sure you're dealing with other people's things as well. That's important. I think when we talk about humanity, I really only intentionally want those energies. And I feel like I attract those energies on purpose. It's, it's by design. I don't, I don't haphazardly do it. There's no one really, my mentors or any, anyone that I'm really connected to that I'm not connected to in, in an energy space as well. And that's the way it should be. Yeah. I have not reached that level yet. <laughs> well, you know, it's still a work in progress. I don't want anyone to take away from this conversation that I'm perfect. I get that a lot or that I don't have really, really tough times and moments where I have to check Natalia. I have to step back. And I want to make sure I say that. Sometimes I don't like to quantify my statements or qualify my statements with those things, but it's important when you're starting a healing process or your self-care process that you're honest, that there are going to be times where you just don't get it right. And it's okay. Well, thank you so much. And I think that everyone listening to this will we'll really take away a lot from, from your words of wisdom and your experiences. And I hope that they'll go watch your cue, the confetti on Saturdays and look at your Instagram page. Cause it's, it's, there's a lot of great stuff on there. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate you. I appreciate you. And I will see you around the workplace. Absolutely. Where you are was created by Jimmy Ellenberg and edited by Fox Williams. Our intro is Small Piano from the Ant Hill album by Patricia Taxon. All music was used with permission. The views expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution for which I have ever worked or will ever work. Thanks for listening. Have a nice day wherever you are.